You are listening to the Rama Blueprints Podcast, Episode 4, The Roots of Rap, Part 1, Emunio. In the late 1960s, the nation was rattled by the atrocities overseas in Vietnam and at home in the United States. The assassinations of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. challenged the ideals of peaceful protest. While the rise of the UFW with Philip Veracruz, Dolores Huerta, and Cesar Chavez brought a new vision of hope and empowerment. In 1969, San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury became the sanctuary for outcast and disillusioned youth of America, seeking an escape through their summer of love. Three years earlier in 1966, the war on poverty had landed in San Francisco. Mission Community Organization was instrumental in creating the Economic Opportunity Councils in low-income neighborhoods like San Francisco's La Misión. The Mission District became the nucleus of grassroots organizing and activism for the BIPOC communities with organizations like Mission Rebels, Mission Community Organization, Horizons Unlimited, Model Cities, Centro de Cambio, Mission Media Arts, Mission Area Youth Council, United Samoan Organization, and many more. Their efforts spawned a movement towards the ideals of self-determination and youth empowerment. For San Francisco's youth, the mayor, Joe Alioto, was heavy-handedly running a city with an oppressive SWAT-style police squad who intimidated and harassed both the Third World Strike protesters at San Francisco State University and local youth gathered in their neighborhoods. Under his guidance, the killer cops could do no wrong. As a political consciousness arose in the mission, many organizations mobilized and took on city leaders, demanding not just recognition, but active participation of programs and services designed by and for their communities. As progress was slowly surfacing, some of these youth who were still experiencing police harassment and neglect from the city services formed Emuño, East Mission United Neighborhood Youth Organization, with the help of Jim Queen. The combination of their efforts to address Youth for Self-Determination with organized San Francisco State University third world striking college students returning to their communities would ultimately result in profound changes in their neighborhood's lives. In this episode, we talk with Jim Queen about how and why he helped the youth of Emunio. We sit down with some of the founding members of Emunio and we talk with Sadie Viapando Williams, community activist and former rap staff. Welcome to the Rama Blueprints Podcast. I am your host, Socorro Gamboa. In this episode, we explore the San Francisco roots and origins of the founding of the Real Alternatives Program, or RAP. Before RAP in 1967, there was Emunio, the East Mission United Neighborhood Youth Organization. Former Navy medic Jim Queen talks about a profound meeting between him and an incredible group of youth who hung out on the corner of 24th Street and Lucky Alley. One day, I get this phone call from the Model Cities program. The director said, there's some young people that would like to meet with someone to help them try and find a place to meet and so forth. And I said, 
okay, I'll meet with them. So it was on 24th Street. There was a Model City's office. So these young people that had hung out on 24th and Lucky Alley, that's where their spot was, and they came and they walked into the building and I meet them. And here's about 20 kids. And what was so interesting was male and female, black, Latino, Asian Pacific Islander, white, a whole eclectic group of multi-ethnic group of young kids. You know, so many people set trip, right? So it's going to be Latin, it's going to be Samoan, it's going to be black. But they all had this real smart, just really smart kids. And so we talked. And I said, okay, they said, we'll deal with it. I'll help you. They wanted to see if they could find a place to have a club, a meeting place they have for their own. We meet. And so I said, okay, let's look around, see if there's any places available in the mission. I said, I will help you on one condition. Is that I will only do this because it's volunteer. You understand? Is that you guys have to agree that you will run the organization, that you will form everything, that you will be in charge. Is that clear? Yep. So I said, okay, let's go. Together, we went and we just found this place that had a little for rent sign on 23rd in Florida, right? Mm-hmm. On a person's door, the lady comes out and so the young people explained to them what we wanted. They said, well, we'd like to have a place to meet. And she said, okay, I'll make a deal. Unbelievable. She goes, I'll let you have this place six months free if you agree to paint it on the inside and the outside, Okay. And so the young people said, yeah, okay, we can do that. And then after that, it would be $100 a month. Okay, okay. So, so now we had a possible place. So then we go around the corner, and the young people and I, we go to the paint store. We see the people to paint. Look, we tell them the story. We have an opportunity to get this place if we can paint it and so forth. Are you willing to donate the paint? They go, okay. So they donated if you met these young people, you automatically fell in love with them because they were just oh, yeah. a, such a multi-ethnic group of kids, but they were just bright. You know how, how young yeah. people are, just so bright. And so we get to paint and paint the inside, paint the outside, right? But as we were doing that, I was saying, okay, what's, you side said you would run the thing. How are we going to do this? You have to organize it. You have to develop your rules and regulations, what the, what's, how you're going to run this place, but you are in charge. I mean, I'll be an advisor, I'll be a mentor, whatever you want to call me. But you are in charge. Is that clear? Yep. They formed a little group. They selected officers, right, to who was going to be in charge, you know, right, of the officers, male and female. They decided on the rules, and they were the most strictest rules, right? You couldn't curse in the place. You could not have any drinks, no drugs, no nothing, on the outside or inside. And the hours, they defined the hours, they defined everything. So that's how it got started. That is self-empowerment, youth self-empowerment. And what I feel good about was that I believe in youth self-empowerment. I believe in that everybody has to empower themselves. I believe in that, you know, right? And so what I did, I think why the young people were attracted to me was I wasn't a typical person that was trying to tell them what to do, but I respected their intelligence. And some of them were a lot more smarter than I was. (laughs) My main role in that process was to try to develop their critical thinking skills and start making them anal- make an analysis of stuff. Like, well, when you're going to YDC, some people are thinking it was cool. Why do you think that's cool? Let's analyze that. You're getting checked out of school because you're talking back to the teacher because the teacher is Eurocentric, doesn't know anything about your culture, is disrespectful to you. So how do you deal with that? 
we start talking about that back and forth how we talk we talked about that right so if you realize that when you get sent to YGC it's not a cool thing because what happens that means they played you you acted up in school because they were disrespecting you they sent you to the principal's office you got mad at the principal they call YGC and when you go to YGC then your mom and dad have to come up and kiss these people's ass to try and get you out of that so you're being played but you're also having your parents being dishonored and disabused and they got it so what that center became was a sanctuary for young people to be off the street less contact with, with everybody have fun you know do things but have dialogue and talk discuss things right we recently hosted a San Francisco reunion and conversation with some of the original Emunio founding members our talk was moderated by our host Socorro Gamboa good afternoon we are in San Francisco, California. You are listening to the Rama Blueprints podcast. We are here in the home of Jim Queen and Esperanza and Chavari. It's a beautiful day in San Francisco. Well, I'd like to welcome this amazing table of folks that I'm sitting with right now. I'm extremely honored to be accompanied today by the original Emunio students, community organizers, warriors and leaders. Uh, sitting with me today is George Monterrey. Hi, George. How are you doing? Okay. Uh, Jose Abrego. Good afternoon. Edwin Betancourt. Hello. And Patsy Hernandez Pacheco. Hello. And Sam Sugar Hernandez. Good afternoon. Well, welcome all of you. We are so humbled and honored to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us how you came and how you got connected to Emunio. Let's start with Edwin. So I'm Edwin Betancourt. It's interesting because I hear Jim and he, from my perspective, he was a huge part of what we were able to accomplish. And I remember somehow him just showing up on the corner on 24th Street one day and we're having conversation and he's asking about what do you guys do and what would you like to do and what if there was another way to do things and so this is what we do all day. What year day. was that? Ooh, let me see, what was that? 13, 14, 67? 67, okay. 1967, yeah. It was the first time that someone really came mm. and asked, what would you like to do? Mm. How would you like to see your life moving forward? And I'm thinking, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> Never had that question. Just in more conversations, we started to get an idea of some of the things that we could be doing and a place to go where we could be safe and start our days off or our mm -hmm. weekends off. And from there, one thing led to another, and that's how we ended up creating Imunio. Well, yes, my name is Jose Abrego, and I'm <clears throat> a first generation of being raised in the U.S., I was born in Nicaragua, and being the oldest in the family, I had to chart my own way through the neighborhoods and school and everything that I learned had to go out and find out myself. I had parents that didn't speak English and no history of what to do, where to go, how to be, and uh, having that to learn that on my own, I found myself at a young age being adventurous and 
curious to go out and meet people and run around with friends and getting into no good sometime. But then came along after burning free time, sitting around, just having fun, you might say. <laughs> and Jim came along and Edwin had said he asked us a few questions. I think back that the key thing that was inspiring is that somebody asking, how would you like to find a different way to spend your time, have some purpose? I didn't really realize that at the moment, at the time, but it just made me curious. And then the ideas started developing into being an individual that had a voice in the community, or at least had some determination of having an objective, something to work towards. And what we had was was a sense of brotherhood in the community. And from there, it grew. George. Yes, I'm George Monterey. And I was born in Nicaragua and grew up in the Mission. And I went to Horseman and Mission High School. And our social life was hanging together on 24th Street with all our friends. And we were like family. We enjoyed each other. We laughed. We joked. We were just a bunch of kids just hanging out and stuff. We were smart. We were street smarts. And we were smart because we watched over each other. And Jim Queen came in, into our lives in his little sports car and came up and started talking to us and asking us questions. I stood a little bit more on the side and was watching him. And I said, this young guy, he's smart. I wonder what he can do for us. And he started talking about the things that he could do for us. And that's what I look at Jim Queen. He's come into our lives and he guided us. And he made sure that we knew, because we were in our own little world. The world was changing. There was Cesar Chavez and there was strikes and for the farm workers. And there was a lot of activism happening. And we were just in our own little world enjoying life in our little neighborhood and he came and opened our eyes and we listened to him and we can see that we can do big things when you get the youth involved everything every movement is with the youth things change with the youth and one of the things that I did I was a coach and a president of pony baseball and worked with the youth and and when I saw Jim I said I am who I am because of you, not my parents, but to open our eyes to the world of activism and doing things for the community was brought on by Jim Queen. Sam? Hi, my name is Sam Hernandez, a.k.a. Sugar. I came to Emunio when I was uh, nine years old, ten. I was hanging out on the streets with the older fellas, and here I'm a young boy doing the things I shouldn't have done. But this gentleman, Jim Queen, showed me a path where I had the direction from my parents, but not a direction on the streets. So he showed me that there is another way other than hanging on the streets to being a part of a community, a part of an organization, a part of a voice that can make a change. Jim guided me and showed me a lot of things that I didn't know. In fact, others followed after me when they seen me having... That foundation, and I really enjoyed the people that were around us. Mm-hmm. It was a family outside of the home. So, in this world of the ball of confusion and everything going crazy, that foundation that he set forth really made an impression in my life. But here, when we went to Emunio, it was all a community. 
aspect. Everybody had a voice, which made it really nice. And everybody treated me well. So I, I was good because I was the littlest guy in the crew. But they treated me like I was their age. So it was a good thing. Just want to mention that Sugar's my brother. Oh, all right. So he was pretty spoiled when we had him at Munoz. <laughs> everybody just loved him. <laughs> I, I came to San Francisco when I was 11. My mother passed away. We lived in Tucson, Arizona. Mm. We came to San Francisco. And I was going to junior high school at the time. There was nothing to do besides making tortillas and beans after mm. school, doing homework, and then... I wandered off into the street, and I met some people from school who took me down to 24th and Folsom. And that's where all these people were hanging out, and I kind of blended in with them. But I remember being on 24th and Folsom, and there was a lot of people hanging out. And there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of police problems. They would come, and they would harass to get off the corner. They would give us 15 minutes to get off the corner. What year are we talking about? Same year. Okay, 67. Same year. I don't know if you yeah. people remember that, but right. that was part of it. And there was a little office that opened up. I wasn't sure who was running it, but I seen a gentleman in a sports car, and I believe there was another female with him or another gentleman, I'm not sure. But we started migrating towards that office mm. because it was open at night. So we started hanging out there, and lo and behold, it's Jim. And he just started talking to us. What are you guys doing? Had the police harassing you? Yeah, he goes, then maybe you should move or leave for 50 minutes, and if you want to come back. But he started guiding us that way, and then he started asking questions. What would you like to do? You guys are just standing out here. And I don't know who it was. Somebody suggested, can we hang out in here? Can we... Something about a pool table. And Jim said, well... I can't rent you this space, but I think we can get it somehow. And he asked people to donate five bucks. Do you guys remember this or am I just... No, I can't remember that. He asked us to put, try to get five bucks and everybody put it in. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, five bucks. My dad's got how many kids? Is he going to give me five bucks to join a club? But lo and behold, we did. We came up with the money. And after... We decided that place wasn't working because of the police. It was very well known. So we decided this isn't a good place for us to be. We need to be concentrated more where it's a little bit more quiet, but not so loud that we're going to disturb the neighbors. Mm -hmm. So that's when he came up and we found Imunio, mm. the site. And from there, I just developed some community skills. I was involved in rap. Mm. I also was involved in the Women's Foundation. And I would go to the high schools and recruit teenage girls. We had a building on 18th Street in the Mission. And I would recruit young women because a lot of the women at the high school thought that it was only for lesbian women and white women. And so I became an office manager through them. Oh, wow. yeah. And then, of course, along came people like Georgia and Espy. Imunia was mostly young teenage people. We did go to the paint shops and all these shops to ask for donations. And that in itself was a skill to learn how to communicate with the store vendors. How did that come about, that skill? How did you learn it? Well, by talking to each other, talking to the elder people, all these other people that were involved as they communicated with us, I learned how to communicate back without cursing. I'm sitting with 
again with folks, some of the original members and founders of Emuño. Patricia, we were talking about your community skills and the skills that you developed while at Emuño. Take well, us through that. Part of the skills I learned was to communicate better mm-hmm. with my peers and to not be so passive nor aggressive at the same time. But there were some things that I was learning about what was really going on around me. Number one, there was nothing other than what we had there at Imuno that was happening for kids our age. We, a lot of us were struggling. A lot of us had struggling parents. And somehow, somewhere, an idea came up about fighting for jobs in the mission. So we went to Sears, and we boycotted Sears and a couple of other companies like that in the area. And somehow out of that came the Mayor's Office of Employment and Training. And there was a lot of people who were participated in that development. Moscone. Moscone. Him and a couple of other people amongst, along with some youth went, talked to the mayor, and somehow that program developed. And we went to the different community sites and asked, like San Francisco General, Sears, all these little offices, if they could sponsor a youth, and the money would come from the mayor's office. And you had to be a certain age in order to do I think it was 14. That was part of my education in terms of learning of what was going on around me and the anger that I started to feel. And then when I lived by Cala Foods, which was a grocery store, and all of a sudden we started learning about Cesar Chavez and boycotting the grapes. And how we all got together in front of Callas. There must have been 70, 80 of us marching in front of Callas. Mm-hmm. And we stopped them from selling the damn grapes. Mm-hmm. So things like that I learned by my peers and educating myself as well as learning about what was really going around in the mission. When you talk about communications, you have to remember when you're in the streets, you have your own communications mm-hmm. that's going on. And... A lot of us thought we were very smart and almost to a level of being little cons where we can go and we can talk people into doing things that they didn't want to do or they didn't know they shouldn't be doing. But we had those communication skills. They just weren't targeted in the right direction. And so what happens is when you get someone that says, hey, let's look at the world a little different and let's take what you do know already and see how we can channel that into another direction, which is what Patricia is talking about. That's what we did. So a lot of us had that because we learned those skills early on because we had to get through the streets from one point to the other so that we can every day move through our lives. Before Imuno, there was 24th Street. Before 24th Street, there was nothing. Mm. We moved to 24th Street in Folsom from Cortland. Mm. And we met some people in school. We met them in the neighborhood. And the other streets, 26th Street, 22nd Street, those were the ruling groups at the time. And so they would come and they would decide whether you can hang out there or not. And they were kind of, they ruled the roost. And so, well, they were doing what they knew to do. But yeah, as growing up there, you were thinking you were being bullied. So what my brother did was he always told people, don't let someone pick on you. Mm. 
because no one wants to fight you every time they see you. Mm. But if you let them bully you and you don't do anything, they'll bully you every time. But when they know something's going to happen back to them, they're yeah. going to stop. Yeah. So from there, it went from there were three of us, then five of us, then 10 of us, then 15 of us. And then on Friday nights, there'd be 40 kids out on 24th and Folsom just mm -hmm. hanging out. That was the gist of where that right. came from. The 26th Street Gang started hanging out with us on 24th. The 20th Street Gang from Folsom Park started hanging out with us. So we would just go, let's all go to Folsom Street. But we were communicating and getting along. There was no longer that vicious wanting to fight like a right. gang kind of thing. Was there a recruitment process to try to get people to, to a Muno? No. That just happened no, in no, itself. No. Muno was, it was strictly 24th Street. Okay. Strictly 24th. Right. Strictly when Jim 24th. Queen came and talked to us, I think a little bit further back, and there was what was called Horizons Unlimited at St. Peter's, and they had counselors and stuff, and they had the youth coming in there and getting hired for summer jobs. I was one of those, and I had a counselor, and I got my counselor to pay me to watch over our pool tables and ping pong tables at Imunio. After school and during the summer, I'm the oldest of seven and my dad was, was struggling. And so that summer job and that after school job, I was able to buy me clothes to think that I was looking sharp on the streets with everybody else. One of the things with 24th Street that I always felt was unique was we had an openness in the group. As Sugar uh, mentioned earlier that people would come and they would meet us. And they always came first hearing 24th Street. So when you hear 24th Street, you think gang related. Yeah. But then they would come and they'd meet us and they would be like, wow, these are some <laughs> really nice people. And I'd like to be a part of them if I could. And I heard earlier Esperanza mentioned about the third world perspective of folks that were part of Emunio, that it wasn't just Latino-centric. We had no racial boundaries in regards to the individuals that were part of this gang, not a gang, but movement, okay? Let's put a movement, okay, of 24th Street. We also claimed Lucky Alley, which was where we'd go and do other things there, but... The sense of humor uh, on 24th Street with all of us was a big melting pot together because we would all laugh, enjoy each other, laugh, and sure said it was like a community, but it was more like family. Yes. Everybody's more like family. That's why everybody gravitated to 24th Street because we treated everybody like there was family. There were no racial boundaries. Nobody really saw any color because in a family, you don't see color. You just see family. You just see the love and the humor and the get-together and the commitment to each other. I started as a dishwasher mm. at the Horizons program at St. Peter's Church. Mm. From there, we went to solicit food or meat and stuff where they used to have the slaughterhouses on 3rd Street. And through that, our communication skills developed further and further, you know? So that at that point, when we were all at Horizons, or all of us that were at Horizons, then we ventured off to Emilia, and when Jim came, we had a voice of our own. We had direction. He's, he gave us the place, and he gave us a little direction, but the direction took off from our standpoint of view, from coming from the streets. If you could recall, when was it that you went 
this is what I need to be involved in right now. This is what I need to be doing. I remember during that period of time, the great boycott. That was a big event because I've never seen so many Latinos, so many people get behind. It wasn't just the young people that were out there making noise. You're talking about seniors, seniors out there making noise, saying, this isn't right what you guys are doing. And that was a big moment for me to realize that you do have a voice in the community, but you got to stand together. And this is a lifelong skill mm -hmm. that I, I learned from Jim. And that was when you would go to Jim and you had a problem, and you say, Jim, I have this problem, and what should I do? And then Jim would look at you and say, great question. What should you do? <laughs> right? And he would make you yeah. answer your own question. And he would make you think. And I tell you, I'm not kidding you. I have developed managers with that simple skill set. They come in, oh, the world is falling apart. Okay, so what are you going to do? And I would make them come in, and I'd say, bring in four solutions. Right. And then I'll work with you. Because I'm not going to determine for you what the answer should be because then I don't need you. If I'm going to do it myself, why am I paying you? The other thing is, and this was, I don't know if Jim realized it at the time, but it was life-changing for me. Jim asked myself and Junior to go speak to lawyers. I think they were in school. They were going through their training. And we got up on stage and I was like, God. It's a sea of white. And who am I to come up on this stage and tell these guys anything? They're all college educated. They've got better backgrounds than me and all that stuff. And Jim's whole point was, no one is better than you. No one has the skill sets today that you have. You just don't know what you have and you've got to bring it out. One of the guys in the group, one of the lawyers, he started asking some silly type questions about going to prison and doing all this stuff. And Junior was trying to answer his questions and he thought, oh yeah, I've got this guy and I'm manipulating him and stuff. And I got really angry. And so I stood up and I said, bomb, bomb, bomb. And I started talking to him about what it's like in the streets. And then as I was doing that, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> everyone was listening. And when we were done, they actually clapped. And I left that stage thinking, oh, there's a lot more to me than I thought. That allowed me in the future to do things in my life that I never would have expected to do. Well, I, I want to thank all of you for being with us today. It has been an honor to hear your wisdom. The tagline we use in this podcast is, to listen is to heal. There's a healing going on here. Grateful for your energy. Thank you again for being here. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. You are listening to the Rama Blueprints podcast. We will be back in a flash. Welcome back to the Rama Blueprints podcast. In 1969, the Real Alternatives program was established and began to formally develop community alternatives to youth incarceration at YGC. We speak with Jim Queen, who explains how we build a relationship with the Amunio youth. When you want to know what rap was, what it became, the basis of that was self-awareness, empowerment, self-determination. That's what it was. So that's, what, that's how Amunio got started. 
I think for me, meeting with those young people initially at the Model Cities office, right. then when I began to work with them at the 23rd in Florida, it just fell in. It was just a real beautiful relationship. We did social things. We held dances. Youth ran the dances. We organized. But mainly what we did was a situation where people had an opportunity to really begin to dialogue, know each other, share their pain, whatever it was, and figure out how to work things out without having to act out and get themselves into difficulty and go to YGC. When I started getting more into other parts of their lives, going to YGC, getting really ticked off at how they were being treated in school and so forth, all that, and they were so smart. I just seen them getting ground up and there's all this crap. And they picked up in their own awareness and began to realize, yeah, you know, we are smart. And yeah, we are this. And so that's really turned me on. Many local people from the Mission District participated in the Third World Student Strike at San Francisco State, including Jim Queen, who would later teach a class in community organizing after having been arrested for an incident during the strike. Hayek Kai was the one that had me arrested. I was involved with the strike at State College, got arrested, spent six months on trial, later on got selected by the La Raza Studies Program to be an instructor. The way I taught the class was to bring in all the people that were involved with the Mission Coalition organization, you know, the activists. But people loved the class so much because it was so real, because it wasn't me. I was giving some lectures, but it was real people giving lectures about their experience, about how they were dealing with housing. Feely Sala came and talked about rap. People just mesmerized by the class. I get a handwritten letter from Hayakawa saying what a fantastic class it was. He was hearing so much about it to thank me. You know, this is after I'd been six months on goddamn trial, you know. One of the Munoz leaders, Pili Sala, emerges as a youth leader through RAP's program. So, first time I went to YGC with a young person, I mean, it may have been Fili Sala. Fili Sala was a young Samoan. Fili was this tremendous energy, very handsome young man, but very smart, very charismatic, knew no fear of anything. Audacious personality, just above it all, but you loved him. You just loved him, but he was very strong personality. I'll tell you how strong his personality was. So we go over to the <clears throat> Mission Coalition organization and they're having their annual meeting, and there's a fight, an argument between these two factions. Feely jumps up on the stage and goes, Stop it! That's how much powerful his personality was. But he was an intimidating person. You follow me? He just had his power. Had his power in the, in the hood. You can tell when somebody's not selling wolf tickets. Somebody that comes up and you know, okay, I don't want to mess with this cat. This cat will deal. Philly got in some difficulty, and so I go to YGC to try and help him. And so the first time I'd been up there, so I go up there, and I meet this little clerk who's really obnoxious. Philly's father is a chief in Samoa. His mom and there, they're both there trying to help their son out, and just the disrespect that they showed the parents, the disrespect they showed him using big words. I understand you had an altercation. I mean, he's using all these words. This little power freak who had no power whatsoever. That pissed me off so much, man. It just pissed me off, you know, right? That's how we first started to go to YGC okay. to begin to establish a community liaison between them. What I discovered right away was the probation officer, who were mostly European, had no clue about anything about the black kids or the Latin kids or the Samoans. They had no clue. They didn't, they didn't know what to do. Plus, most of them had caseloads of 25, 30 kids. 
So they couldn't do a goddamn thing. They're supposed to see them all the time. They couldn't. They call them on the phone. So there was nothing there at all whatsoever. So then I became to be an intermediary saying, we can uh, provide this. I was making up shit, right? I said, we can provide tutoring. We can provide some other things. for you. Whatever it was, I would try and get them off. I learned that by offering an alternative, and sometimes the alternative was Amunio, which was real. But we would say things, and they were going, okay. You know, you know not because they, cause it, they, were just so, they were so desperate. Then there was a group called the Neighborhood Legal Services, also part of the Model Cities program. And so then I started to get them involved to help represent the kids at YGC. So, so we began to, began to have that relationship with YGC now. And so there was a young man who worked with me named Tommy Kim. Korean brother that I had met at City College who had worked together at the post office. And so when I started volunteering with these young people, he would relieve me sometimes. He'd come in and help relieve me. Beautiful brother. So then Tommy would start to go to YGC to, to also intervene with the kids. So that's how that began. Now we now we'll flash forward a little bit, okay? The guys at Neighbor Legal Services said, what you're doing is beautiful. It's really wonderful. But you need to expand that. You know, right? You need to have stat, blah, 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 you know, right? I said, okay. So they said, we'll agree to help to try and find funds to fund an organization. Now, we didn't want to do that with Amunio because we wanted it to be totally youth-run. Keep in mind, youth-run. Okay? So that's how the RAP got founded because they offered to help do some things, and I came up with the name of the Real Alternatives Program, RAP, Alternatives to the System. All systems, school, so forth. So the idea was, you run it, youth run it, the people in the neighborhood run it, and we'll de- develop alternatives to the system and create our own system that we control. So that was the whole beginning of what it was all about. You know, the kids started to come by, Sugar and all Feely and all the kids, and became a place to hang out. You are listening to the voice of Sadie Viapando Williams, community activist and former rap staff. And this is what Jim always believed, is that... You make your place inviting mm. so that people want to come and get service, but not just service, connection. It was before we realized the value of connection and community and socializing. You know, now we know what it means to have social connection. But back then, it was community building. And because of Horizons, I already had become aware politically a little. They had educated us about injustice, what the farm workers represented to us. And so I was bringing what little I knew about organizing to these young people and how important it was to speak up and to fight for what you wanted. So these kids, they became empowered. They became part of the organizing that we were doing. And then we gave them leadership. So they became responsible for actually formalizing how we were going to do this. And so critical thinking, I think, was what we taught them. To be able to think through what it was you wanted, first of all, and then how were you going to get it? How do you organize to get it? And we used the Sololinsky method. I didn't know about it, but I was taught that, you know, it's through that internalized motivation that you get people to act. And how you show them that, how you inspire them to do that is by opening up their eyes to the reality and not letting them be victims. Mm. They are not victims, right? They're creators. Now, I didn't have that language back then, but I knew in my heart, this is what we have to do. Kids, we got to organize. And it was fun. We made it fun. 
and they took roles. They had roles. Feely was up there mar hitting that because he was Samoan, so he had his boom, boom. And we were marching, and Robert Dwight was, we were doing dichos. I mean, it came from the farm workers, but we learned from them. Absolutely. We learned how to do it. Right. And uh, it was just a wonderful time for organizing. In 1970, now that rap was up and running, the Amonio youth began to look at what institutional structures were keeping them down. They immediately demanded the closure of San Francisco Youth Guidance Center. Jim Queen explains. One of the things we did right away when we became organized as RAP is that we started immediately saying we wanted to have Youth Guidance Center shut down. In 1970, we actually went to the Youth Guidance Center and put chains on the doors and locks. So we shut it down. We actually physically shut it down. We kept agitating to have more resources, more other resources, but they wouldn't listen, of course. The chief probation at the time was a guy named Botka. So we got a caravan of young people from Amuno and other places to go down to his house in Woodside, California. And we went and did flyers all through his neighborhood saying that Chief Probation Officer Botka is a racist, you know, he's oppressive to young people, we should shut down YGC, all up and down the street that he lived on. So we had young people getting activists and seeing what it takes that you put pressure on people. After these actions, Emunio youth began to emerge as leaders through rap. These accounts that we have presented reflect a small portion of the leadership within the mission community. Many of those leaders have transitioned, and however, the heart and soul of some of these OGs are still with us. It is critical that we honor the ancestors, the teachings, and share the wisdom. Join us as we listen to the voices of this radical historical legacy that would become the Real Alternatives Program, RAP. In the roots of RAP Part 2, we look at the journey of RAP through the 70s and 80s as many of the RAP youth participants step up into positions of leadership. RAP was a place where people could go and be put in positions of empowerment. And I'm talking about young people from the community, young people who maybe didn't go to college, maybe didn't have the proper paperwork, but they were put in positions of leadership and put in positions of responsibility and given a place where they can make mistakes and learn. And so many people came through rap and based on that experience, myself included, were able to parlay that momentum into either a career or just a transformation in their life and change their trajectory. And I think that was so important and I saw it happen. Thank you for listening to the Rama Blueprints podcast. The Five Sisters Audio Garden would like to acknowledge the following. Carece NSF, Instituto Familiar de la Raza, Change Elemental, the Pacific Islander Resource Hut, Our Brother, Rest in Power, Mitchell Salazar, Ray Balboron, and Mission Media Arts, the OGs of Emuño, and the many individual supporters who have graciously donated to our production. You can donate and become part of our family by visiting caresnsf.org. This episode was written, produced, and edited 
by Darren J. De Leon and Socorro Gamboa. If you like our show, subscribe. Give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with two people. Please spread the word and remember... To listen is to heal. All power to the people. Aho!